0: If you're looking for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Ear Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet sounding instruments. Go to ToeirGuitars.us, that's T O I R G U I T A R S.us, and contact Ed today. Top Hill Recording Podcast, episode 81. What's going on, Neil? What's up, buddy? How you doing? I'm good. We are starting season six. Oh, shit. Hard to believe. With I a quick. With a little, I saw you brought us some Evan Williams Bottled and Bond 100 Proof.
1: Yeah, man, I thought we'd go ahead and kick it into gear with 100 Proof.
0: So we got an awesome guest tonight that's just <laughs> full of music history. We've got Mark Klein from Love Tractor with us. Welcome, Mark.
2: Hey guys, welcome! Thanks yeah, for having me on. Yeah, no, thank, you. thank you.
0: Cheers, Neil. Cheers, cheers, cheers Mark. Mark.
2: Cheers, cheers, boy. That's some good tasting bourbon.
0: You know, it's not bad at all. <sighs> ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you
2: know <laughs> Keith. You know Keith Richards goes for the Jack Daniels. Ah, uh,
1: well, nothing wrong with that.
0: So I'm going to tell. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Before we start off with our question with Mark, I got to, uh, Mark, I got to let Neil in on a little secret because he's always making fun of my iPhone 6. No, you did not. (laughs) So, this weekend, Uh I got a text from T-Mobile that said, hey, basically said, hey, uh, we're shutting down our 3G network. So your phone won't work anymore starting in January. <laughs> so, so I was forced to buy a new phone. You got a new phone? Yeah. Where is yeah. it? Yeah, well, but well, that's not it. Is. No, I don't have it out yet. I, I I hang on to this one as long as I can. Oh man. my gosh! <laughs> so you wait until December twenty something? No, I, I just got it in the mail today. Ah, oh, that's amazing. What so you get? what you get? Mark, they forced me to upgrade my phone. Forced me. Tell you what, taken over, taking over. <laughs> <You're> taking over. <laughs> uh, so I that's got, hilarious I got the, the iPhone 3G. 12 Mini because I didn't want Ooh. one of those big phones. You know, I want something I could slide in they my come, pocket. Of course, some good video though.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: oh yeah. I got the 12 Pro, and it's like, I work in the advertising business, and I mean, we're shooting commercial stuff with that with with that telephone. I'm so. telling you, it's I, insane. I, you know. Unless Apple wants to pay us to do this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know well, that's, we can uh, plug them.
0: Yeah, we do. A, we've got a YouTube video series here that we do. And, uh, you know, we found that the cell phone camera on, on Neil's new phone is better than any camera we have. So yeah. we use the cell phone. Yeah. It's wild.
2: <laughs> now, it's interesting because it's, they're really not cameras. It's, it's imaging processing. It's image processing software and lidar and it's this whole other thing really yeah it tells depth of field by the lidar and so it can adjust for different spaces i just did a photo shoot and then the fellow that was doing all the lighting from the photo shoot had just been in cupertino at apple doing photo shoots with them and so he had the skinny on the whole thing oh wow
0: Yeah, well, that makes sense now that you say that, that there wouldn't actually be like a physical camera in this little thing. It's like a,
2: it's a Matrix shit. Yeah. <laughs> it is like, yeah, it's, you know, you take the red pill or the white pill or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the red or blue Oh man, green just I just red saw, I just saw,
1: uh, I just saw Matrix 4 preview and it looks amazing.
0: I'm sure it will be. Ooh, yeah.
1: I'm looking forward to the Dune. Oh, that looks Street good food. too. Yes. Yeah. Soon enough, by the end of the year, both of them will be out. There we go. Yeah.
2: Danny Villeneuve. I love his movies. Ah. Uh, is that who's uh, doing Dune? Yeah. Okay. Wow. He's good. All
0: right. All right, Mark. So why don't we kick this off? Why don't you for our listeners uh go back to childhood and share with us your earliest memories of music and then maybe where you decided music was gonna be a big part of your life?
2: Oh, it's it it's actually a really good story. Um, I but first of all, I grew up like in a fairly musical household. My father really dug music and um, all kinds of music. And so there was always music playing in the background. He listened to a lot of classical, um, a lot of Burt backrack, um, a lot of stuff happening sort of like early 60s stuff, even like the Beatles. So I got a really broad sense of even musicals. I mean, I remember being like a kid and seeing the touring version of a sound, Sound of Music, and I, I remember I was like five or something. I'm looking at my parents. and said, "But how can you see the?" They said, "We're going to see the Sound of Music." I said, I had, "But you can't see music, <laughs> you know." It didn't make any sense to me. But for me, it all sort of really hit home. Was I was in first grade, and it was one like first or second day in first grade, and some of the eighth grade girls came down into our class to sing to us. And they had little guitars and they sang some Bob Dylan songs. And this is, you know, 1966. And it blew me away. And I said, that's it. I want to play music. I I want a guitar. Um, I'm an official Bob Dylan fan now. (laughs) And, you know, I went home and I told my father all of that. He's like, all right, you know, let's do it and so you know next christmas came along and i got a guitar and you know he signed me up for guitar lessons and that was it Mm -hmm. and and you know and also I, i grew up in atlanta and you know it was the 60s and you know the whole civil rights movement was really happening in atlanta because you know dr king was still alive and happening and so R&B music was kind of the the soundtrack to my childhood um on the radio and all around um all the radio stations so for me it was like I grew up listening to James Brown and Gladys Knight and the Pips and Otis Redding and Little Richard and yeah. um and Marvin Gay um, you know, all the greats. Mm. And, you know, so so many of them were from Georgia to begin with. That had a huge influence on me. And um, I loved all the Motown stuff. I loved all the stacks, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the music out of Memphis. Um, then, you know, high school came around and the whole Southern rock thing was sort of happening, Marshall Tucker Band and Leonard Skinner. And I really disliked all of that stuff. <laughs> I just did. And so did my older brother. And we discovered, um, I mean, this is early 70s. We discovered the you know British progressive rock and British art rock, you know, Roxy Music, Brian Eno. I mean, I remember going to eighth grade. And Space Oddity was on the radio in the car, and one of the kids' hippie brothers was driving us to school. And you know, he turned, turned that off, said, What's this crap? And I was like, wait, 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 wait a minute. My older brother and I really fell in love with all of the English what was happening over in the UK, much more so than sort of the hippie music or the southern rock thing that was happening in the States, which followed into college and you know i think we're all from the same generation where when you met somebody the first thing you would ask them was who's your favorite band and (laughs) if they answered incorrectly they weren't your friend (laughs) (laughs) and luckily when i went off to college i went you know university georgia athens you know everything was starting to happen there it hadn't happened yet it was just starting i walked in on my first day my first class first day of college and it was i was an art student at the art school which every all of the bands everything came out of and i sat down next to this guy and i turned to him and i said what are you listening to now what do you what's your favorite he goes oh i like Brian Eno's another green world and then, we're instant best friends. We're still best <laughs> friends to this day. I mean, he lives a few miles away from me in Brooklyn. So for me, it was, you know, it, it was something that was really constantly, uh, you know, there was a soundtrack from, from an early age all the way up, even to now, that there was always music in the background in my life. And it was always all different types of music. I mean, there was something I didn't really like. A lot of it I really liked. You know, like the Southern Rock, I never liked because it was just kind of faux to me. Whereas, you know, f- give me Flying Burrito Brothers. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I would go for that.
1: When, when you were, you know, when Southern Rock came along and, and you started listening to more of the stuff that's coming out of the UK, how did you find it? I mean, was that just the deep dive into record stores? And, and um, because, you know, you couldn't just search an internet search and find new music it was tough you had to to search it out
2: growing up in atlanta there were a lot of you know big record stores and there was not far from my house peaches records and tapes and they had a huge import section and the big music importer back then was called gem so if it came through gem and also if it was on island records you know it was good And so we would just go into the record stores and look for this stuff that maybe we had, someone had mentioned or we kind of heard on the radio and dig deeper into it and then look at the back of the records. Like, who's playing on this? and Then go find them on another record and, you know, really dig deep into it. And, you know, I was... I don't know how old I was. I was a teenager and I was in a bowling alley in Western France in the middle of literally in the middle of nowhere in Western France. And I went to a bowling alley and they had a jukebox and in the jukebox had craft work on it. I'm like, Oh, well, who's this? And I started pumping money into the jukebox and playing craft work and which, you know, blew me away you know it was trans europe express and i i sort of remembered craft work because they had audubon had sort of been a mini hit in the united states and i really dug that but then when i heard trans europe express i was just you know I uh, you know that was it for me i was a fan <laughs> fan for life <laughs> i mean i've i still if they play you know somewhere i'll fly flew like, like You know, I flew to L.A. to see a bunch of the shows. No kidding. You know, so for me, it was just always finding the the quality of music that I liked didn't necessarily go with the mainstream, but it was always finding something different. It was also the fact that I was a musician. Mm -hmm. And I could play. Not that I was ever a great musician. You know, you would never find me, like, doing, like, Um, Eddie Van Halen runs. I can't. You know, it's like I don't only Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, there are a few. (laughs) There's only a few. (laughs) It made me think a lot about music and what I liked Mm and what I didn't like.
0: You get to UGA, and I think most people would probably agree that that Athens. You could make the argument that the what was coined alternative college rock started there. Yeah. And and it sounds like you were there. I mean, you guys were a big part in forming that sound and forming that reputation. Were you not?
2: Yeah, we it was it was um B fifty twos, Pylon, Love Tractor and R.E.M. I mean, it seems like at one point everybody wanted to be in Love Tractor, but we were sort of the really the the more art rock band out there because our first we actually put out our first two albums while we were still in college. Hmm. And so we could do whatever we wanted. Like our first album was 100% instrumental. And I have a track, I, I sent you guys a track, Fun To Be Happy, which is like a really popular song on that record. And the reason that we, it was all instrumental wasn't because, you know, critics always would say, oh, they had an instrumental album because they didn't have a PA. We, REM and Love Tractor, we shared the same rehearsal space. And so all <laughs> the gear was there. We just would write songs that didn't... I would be playing rhythm. Mike would be playing a melody on a lead guitar. And it did. It just wouldn't need any vocals until our second album came around. Then there were three tracks that needed vocals. So vocals got added.
0: Let's listen to, to Fun to Be Happy, a little bit of that. And then when we come back, you've talked about the diversity and the the broad variety of music you were listening to and were were raised on, what what your thoughts are on how this sound developed and came out of Athens. Let's talk about that after we listen to a little bit of uh, Fun to be Happy.
2: Great.
1: So the first full album is all full instrumental album.
2: The whole album is instrument. I mean, did you hear any place for vocals on that song? No. No. <laughs> well, no. I, It's busy. It, and it
0: also sounds like a lot more than a, a trio, where there are a lot of layers to that.
2: It's two guitars, bass, drums, and a pianist. Yeah. That's it.
0: It keeps building. It's, uh, it builds momentum as you listen to it. Mm-hmm.
2: Oddly enough, we were big fans of that disco band, Chic. And now, uh, now Rogers, Bernard Edwards, and, and Tony Thompson—just mm. the band itself, the sound that they could get as a three-piece was, frankly, like always, sort of blew us away. I mean, again, we we never limited ourselves to a genre of music. I mean, we were listening to a lot of post-punk stuff, and, and you know, punk and and whatnot that was going on. Not to say that that didn't influence us. But, um, you know, there are there other influences. I mean, we like Casey and the Sunshine Band just as much as we like the Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I started at the University of Georgia, you know, it was very nascent. Nothing had really started there. There was a little hint of it. and It was all happening inside the art school. And the art school of the University of Georgia was off on the eastern side of campus all by its lonesome self, you know, not that many students.
1: That's actually what I was going to ask. You said 35,000 or so in the college, uh, or in, in Georgia. How many of those are art students? Maybe a couple thousand, a thousand,
2: uh, uh, maybe 200.
1: Really? So you spend all that. <laughs> yeah. t-
2: oh, wow. And so we all became close, close friends and we're still close friends to this day. I mean, B-52s, Pylon, Love Tractor, R.E.M., we were all at school there. Michael Stipe introduced me to Armstead Welford, who was our bass player, because <laughs> Michael and I would finish class and then go over to his place and listen to records, you know, this before any of the bands started up. Mm-hmm. We had a professor named Robert Croker who taught us, who was a painting and drawing professor, and, and he, one of his advanced drawing classes in a reel-to-reel tape machine. And so we would, you know, he'd put on music for us to to draw to. We'd have a model, a nude model, and, and he'd all stand around and draw, and he would say, this is a 10-second or 5-second pose. But what was important was, the music that he would turn on would be the Velvet Underground or the Ramones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like he was playing typical radio music. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was something other. That also had a big influence on us because one of the big things that happened at the, at the school and the, the sort of uh, methodology of the school was really to constantly pull the rug out from underneath us. So we were never repeating ourselves or doing the same thing. And the music came out of it in two ways. One way was we applied what we were learning as visual aesthetics to musical aesthetics and hmm. contrast and also we were this group of like say 200 people we're all good friends we didn't hang out with the other people on campus because they all wanted to beat us up <laughs> um and i'm not kidding yeah they would you know we would get chased down and they try to beat us up oh wow so we all would hang out together and have these huge dance parties in these giant Victorian houses in Athens that we would pay maybe three hundred dollars a month to rent the entire house, and you know <laughs> be, these houses were enormous, enormous. You know, you'd have a dance party, and you know the floors were shaking and everything was moving <laughs> up and down. And this would be like from records. And then somebody said, "Well, why don't we have a band?" You know, so Kate and Cindy and Fred and Ricky at one of the parties brought a bunch of instruments along and played. And the B fifty twos were formed. Huh. So wow. You know
1: B fifty two started out as an art installation at a party.
0: And just to be clear, <laughs> yeah. just to be clear, you guys are visual art students. You're not performing art students, correct?
2: Visual all visual art students. Yeah. That's all interesting. Main, um, I mean you kind of see it in a especially in a lot of English musicians. A lot of them went to art school to um what began to happen was we decided there was there were no clubs that were designed for us we really couldn't go to any of them we'd get beaten up like i say so we would have our own parties we would make our own fun brian eno coined the term scenism which is a concept that it's not just it's not the bands that created the scene it's everybody Everybody that created this. And the bands themselves were more of a, a symptom, hmm. to say, of yes. the scene. Hmm. And so we would form a band just to keep our friends entertained. And <laughs> and it would just so happened to be when somebody had some musical ability. I mean, I remember being over at some friend's house and Michael and Randy from Pylon coming over and saying, we just started a band. And we're like, all right, cool. Wouldn't you know, what part are you playing? You know, then they played a party and it was a huge party and that was their beginning. And that party was in Curtis <laughs> wow. of Curtis Crow, the drummer of Pylon's Bylon's loft, his art studio, and it was lit by a 40 watt ball. <laughs> and that's how the 40 watt club started.
3: Oh wow. Really?
2: Yeah. Then it moved across the street and became a real club. Um <laughs> And I lived in a house um, with Michael and Curtis from Pylon and Kit Swartz. So, you know, Mike Richmond, who was in Love Tractor, he would come over, this is like maybe 79 or something like that, and bring his guitar and we would just jam and write stuff. And Kit lived across the hall and he played drums. And so he might bring his drum kit over and we would play then armstead joined in and our first performance was in that house it had a huge hallway that was probably you know like 25 feet wide and i don't know 40 feet long it's gigantic you know it was a big Wow! and you know we played a, a big crazy insane party there and you know that was like our first gig R.E.M.'s first gig was at a house that Michael and Peter lived in that happened to be a converted old church. Oh, wow. Um, it was like a house built inside an old church, but the old church was still parts of it was there. And so you crawl through a closet and open a door and it'd be the old sanctuary church. Are you church. kidding
1: me? <laughs> wow!
2: And so, and so like R.E.M. played on the altar of that. That was their first gig. That's and insane. it was a huge, insane party. It was just all of us. It was just us, these 200 or so people or less. And Danny Beard in Atlanta had gone to the University of Georgia and opened a record store in Atlanta called Wax and Facts and was dating Kate Pearson. I believe he was dating Kate Pearson at the time. And he said, oh, well, let's do a single. And so he put out the B-52s' first single, Rock Lobster. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the B-52s went to New York and played, and they were an overnight sensation. They were hit.
0: That was about, what, 81, I would say?
2: No, that was 78,
0: 79. Oh, okay. I remember the first time... I heard to be fifty twos. I was a uh, freshman or sophomore in high school, so I'd been eighty one or eighty two. But it's funny because <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, you uh, live in Kentucky,
1: though, man. Stuff travels slow. Yeah, to get it here. was.
0: Uh, it was that song. Want to dance? Want to dance? Or uh, what
2: is it? uh Dance this mess around.
0: Yeah, my friend Dominic Blakemore, a black guy, he thought uh-huh. it was a- hilarious because we thought she was saying, "I'm not no little black girl." <laughs> <laughs> But he's <laughs> actually saying, I'm no Limburger.
2: I'm no Limburger. Yeah. <laughs> to this day, I swear that Fred was the first rapper ever. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was sad because all of a sudden they were gone because there was nothing in the South for them. And they moved to New York. And they got a, got signed by Warner Brothers. And they left. But they took care of all of us. They had made it, so if we were coming to New York, they took care of it. They made sure all the writers, all the record people, were out at our shows, and you know really took care of us. Oh,
1: that's awesome.
2: Then Pylon started. They were the next band, the great band. They were, you know, best friends of mine. I mean, Michael from Pylon and I had gone to high school together, and they sort of, you know, they rocked the house. Um, and then we started, and REM started. Love Track to R.E.M. started probably within a month of each other. We like did our debut performances, but you know it was really it. There was no intent in any of this to be commercial, to be a commercial success. Mm-hmm. We were just writing music for our friends. Most of us, our biggest ambition was to have a record put out on DB Records because Danny DB Records had done the B52s' first single, and to go and do a show in New York. And get written up in an in interview magazine or the New York Rocker. Mm. That was the limits of our aspiration, and we did all that. And but it kept going, and it you know we kept, kept building an audience.
0: It's just a fascinating story that you know four four bands that were such a high impact and starting a new sound came from a small art school of two hundred classmates. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's, well, it, it could be a movie. It almost we were talking almost, about
1: movies. It almost makes sense. I mean, you know, you got you. They created their own culture. They created their own vibe, and, and what came out of that, even when it went mainstream, it wasn't mainstream. That's why it was different. That's why it sounded. That's why you know B fifty two and REM it it caught you uh, by surprise. It didn't sound like anything out out there when it when it hit the scene. Sitten. No, yeah, and, and which makes a ton of sense that it came from art school kids that thought about things differently. It was about the art. It wasn't about the the money. It wasn't about making. 100%. Yeah, and, and you know that's that's kind of a hard lane to to maintain. It to be so, I don't know, not driven by the dollar sign or the success, but. You know, they literally made uh, made records that they loved and and counter and, and yeah, and,
4: and
1: and when they did come become mainstream, it wasn't mainstream music. It was a different shift.
2: Yeah, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't. It was. In fact, if any of us kind of were leaning or trying to sell out we get reamed by one of the other bands <laughs> or by people in our friend group mm-hmm. in Athens. Yeah. You know, like one of the songs I sent you was neon lights, which was a cover of a Kraftwerk song, which nobody even knew it was a cover of a Kraftwerk song, but it was sort of a change because when we released that, it was basically released as a single and it went to number one on all the college charts and all the alternative charts. And, all by its own with really zero promotion. And now, still to this day, it was sort of cracks me up is people are, you know, craft has sort of had a resurgence and all these people just, like said, oh, craftwork is doing a love tractor song. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like at the time, it was like, no. I mean, and we took it and because we realized it was, you know, it was a 4 chord song. It was D G. C, maybe A, I think. I mean, super simple, super simple melody, super simple lyrics. And it was one of those songs that we said, you know what? We can do this better. Or not better, but different. We were huge fans. And we just were, you know, and our version of it was like riding down a dirt road with the top down on your car.
0: Mm. Let's listen to it.
2: All right, let's take a listen.
0: Neon lights.
1: And that's a that's a actual cover. Yeah, it doesn't sound yeah anything like that. No. So just a different <laughs> feel. It reminds me of a story. Not a story, but my actually Brad's neighbor always did this song by Lonnie Mack called "Falling in Out of Love with You" or "Falling Back." No, "Falling mm-hmm. Back in Love with You." And I had never heard the song until I was I don't know maybe three or four years ago. And when I heard it, it caught me by such surprise because I was like, "That's Jeff's song. That's not." Did Same thing, man. Lonnie Max is a legend, but he was doing a Jeff Donahue cover my entire life. Yeah. Then I heard it that way I was like, yeah, man, that's way worse than the song that I've heard all my life. <laughs> <laughs> you like the Jeff, Oh, yeah. man. Jeff yeah. Donahue version's better. Sometimes, man, it's just done right the second time.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's like, yeah, Roy Orbison. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, talk about everyone covering, you know, I, I think, you know, you look at like Linda Ronstadt, Blue Bayou. Oh yeah. Her cover of that and
1: You're always on you my know, mind. Willie Nelson. That's not the original. Willie version.
2: Nelson. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: You're always on my mind. Uh you know, there's certain songs that that lend themselves. There's a lot of great Velvet Underground songs like Pale Blue Eyes that hmm. that you can we always had a belief that if you're gonna do a cover song you have to do it. It's gotta be a song that you can do. A really do it justice and do it differently mm-hmm. and sort of make it your own song Yeah, and do it well and and do honor to the song but it really sounds like a different song mm-hmm. and a lot of people of mind Roy Orbison I mean there's so many great songs in his catalog mm-hmm. and you know Lou Harris I mean a lot of people uh, the most famous is probably I Will Always Love You by Dolly oh, yeah. Parton done yeah. by Whitney Houston, you know. Everybody loves Dolly.
1: Oh, if you don't love Dolly, we can't be friends. (laughs) That's right. That's
2: that's right. I mean, that's also another thing about Athens is all of this crowd of people. It was like, we were listening to Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn. We were listening to everything.
3: Mm. Yeah.
2: It wasn't limited to certain things. It was, you know, everything was on the table for us.
0: So you guys are at Georgia and you're building this thing that's gaining momentum while you're in school. What happens after you guys leave Georgia?
2: Well, we graduate. Well, what was interesting was Bill Berry from R.E.M. was playing in Love Tractor while we were writing our first album. He was playing in Love Tractor and R.E.M. at the same time. I mean, it was all pretty incestuous. <laughs> you know, we all shared equipment. We shared members, <laughs> you know, with all the different bands. You know, when we recorded our first album, uh, you know, we were like using, I think, Pylon's equipment to record <laughs> our first. Whoever's album. Whoever's got the
1: best equipment wins,
2: man. <laughs> yeah, but everyone was—we're—we're we're all such close awesome. friends. But Bill was playing in Love Tractor, and he had also been working in the summer in the summers, I think, at Capricorn Records down in Macon, Georgia. And, you know, home of the Allman Brothers, basically. Mm. And he had a really good sense of the music industry. And Bill is, to this day, a really great friend. And he is a real kind of taskmaster. You know, he keeps things on moving. And he really did that for REM until they got management. But he came along and he came to us and he said, are you guys willing to quit school and make a go of this? Because the, the time is now, right now is the time, and he was right. And you know, I was in a basically a five year program for graphic design at University of Georgia, and I had like a couple of more quarters until I was going to finish. I said, I have to finish. I've invested all this time, money. I've got to finish. And Armstead was the same way. So he went over to the guy, to Michael and Peter and Mike and R.E.M. and posed the exact same question and they said yeah let's go for it Mm. and so bill went off and cracked the whip on the guys at rem and got everything lined up and they went off and did their thing and which was great that they did it first because they took a completely different different sort of track of building an audience whereas we would get in a car, and RM would do it early on, too, because we would play shows together. We would get in cars and drive to New York for a long weekend. and we'd skip school, like on a Thursday and a Friday and a Monday, and <laughs> drive to New York to, and play shows, and then dr- and drive back. But what RM did was interesting and really helped us out, helped Pylon out as well, is they gradually moved sort of by radius... Uh, like a hundred miles out of Athens, then another hundred miles, then another hundred miles. So they were introducing themselves and us to these clubs through Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, Virginia, Washington D.C., and moving and creating audiences in those areas. And that opened it up for us: Columbia, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. Chapel Hill, you know the gazillions of colleges that there Mm. there were in North Carolina, uh, Richmond, Virginia. So it really, really helped all of us out.
0: So were you guys playing these shows? Some of these shows with R.E.M.
2: Some of them, yeah, we would play with them. Yeah, we would um, we would play shows. We played a lot of shows together Mm. um, um, early on, and then we all went off on different paths. You know, because then it became all of a sudden. We graduated. Like when when I graduated college, I graduated basically with a record contract in one hand and a degree in graphic design, you know, professional degree in the other hand. I, you know, it's like which one would you do? You know, much better. Go make records and go on the road, Mm -hmm. or go to do a professional career. It's like screw the professional career. I'm going on the road. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) and you know and lucky for us rm had already been out and sort of opened up these pathways for all of us to tour and had broken into all these new markets for us and so we followed along that path which was great and then you know you know record contracts everything would follow and you know then it became different we would Put out a record and be on tour for a year and then come back to Athens. And it had changed. And it wasn't just that 200 of us anymore. Now kids were moving to Athens to mm. be in bands, specifically uh. to be in bands, you know, and not doing it just to entertain themselves. And we, I have to say, Pylon, Love Tractor, REM, Beef2, T- we were still doing it for the love of the art and we did it all throughout our career in fact when we stopped doing it in the early 90s it was because we were burnt out and the record companies and our management were demanding us to stay on the road and put out another record and we had in fact i guess it was around 92 or 93 we stopped touring and we had new management out of memphis we've been up in memphis doing demos and Alex Chilton was hanging out with us at the studio, and which is always cool, you know, have a legend like that. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: You know, Management, I said, we'll do these demos and this will be great. And, you know, we can can this stuff or you guys can release it, but we're not going on the road. And they said, no, we've already got a tour booked for you. You have to understand, we had just come off of really 10 years straight. Of being on the road wow and the previous three years we had been on the road literally nonstop. um we had put out an album called the uh, themes from venus which we're about to re-release want to plug that it's mm. coming out in november we had toured that record for a year on our own and then we got picked up to open for the b-52s for the What was the name of the album? The album had Love Shack and Rome on it, Mm -hmm. and we were invited to tour with them. And we did, you know, close to a year with them on that. That was grueling work. Then we came off the road for that, and the man, our management, sent us back out on the road to keep touring themes, the the, that record themes from Venus. So that was three years straight, Mm. nonstop. And we came back and we were burnt, completely burnt. We changed management. We hired new management. And, you know, with this sort of tacit agreement that we would be left to write and to record and to relax and chill out, take a year and a half off from touring and all of that. And they didn't follow through. So we just said, that's it. That's You broke the contract. We're not doing it. And we had all of these demos, all these stuff. We had two albums worth of music in the can. So we took off probably two years and we didn't tour. And we got back together like in 95 and started recording some of the songs that we had. And we were completely refreshed. Completely refreshed. And we had all of these songs in the can, like I said, and we said, "Oh, well, let's work on those," and all of a sudden, we started just not working on those. We started writing all new material because we were so fresh.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But in our typical fashion, because we write, we're if if we're writing something fresh and new like that, it takes us a long time. The record didn't come out. This is '95. The record wasn't released until 2001.
3: <laughs> oh wow. <laughs>
2: so so basically we sat out the entire 90s. We sat out grunge uh, and also we saw that like music was changing. Mm-hmm. Grunge was coming along. It was a whole different thing and we weren't willing to sort of change what we were doing to fit this sort of new commercial standard that the record labels were were looking for and we wanted to do our own music so we we set out the 90s we put out an album 2001 through an rca affiliate (laughs) i was in in fact i was already living in new york and i was down at the label i was actually negotiating with them money for tour support because we were going to go do a limited record company didn't know this but we knew it. We would do a limited tour, like a fly tour. It's all fly dates. Then they read an interview with a number of mem- another member of the band saying, We're not going to tour. <laughs> 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 and immediately dropped us. Immediately uh. dropped us. Honestly, we were fine with it because we all sort of had taken all that during that time. You know, we were doing what we wanted to do and writing music and recording music and having it back to enjoying it the way we were enjoying it when we did our first few albums and we kept saying oh we need to re-release our catalog we need to re- you know we're always slow about getting things done mm-hmm. and 2015 we decided because we didn't want to do another album because we knew we would have to go shopping around and we would have to sign a deal with a record company that would say you have to go on the road and you have to do all this we just didn't want to do it but what we did want to do was re-release all of our catalog and sort of clean up our catalog because it was just in a mess and we so in about 2015 we started pulling all of that together and last november we we re-released our first album we completely remixed it because the quarter-inch tapes were in really bad shape. And so Bill Barry from REM came in, and Dave Barbie from Sugar, and sort of coached us through it. Because left to our own devices, we would have remixed it like a dub mix. <laughs> and You know, it would been something else. And Bill's, you know, was in the band as a taskmaster, and so he sat there and said, no, 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 no. And, you know, he knows something about making a good record. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So (laughs) So you listen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we listen to, you know, Bill, you know, that's Bill. And he's, you know, he's a great, you know, he's also very much unsung as a songwriter. Hmm. You know, he wrote a lot of great stuff for, uh, you know, R.E.M.'s material.
0: So let's listen to another uh, Love Tractor song. Let's let's tell us a little bit about Crash.
2: Crash was written on a... Themes from Venus. Uh, it was single, uh, MTV video, um, really much pop song. That that it was influenced. I would say when we recorded this album, we were mining our high school influences uh, <laughs> of you know progressive rock of all the English art rock we were listening to David Bowie and Roxy. And in a way, it's a bit of a Bowie Roxy hybrid song. Not that we were trying to copy it, but we were sort of channeling the muse of those two artists.
0: All right, let's check it out. great job on the remix <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. yeah it sounds sounds yeah. great so how does it feel mark you, you know you guys what 40 45 i mean maybe even approaching 50 years of of starting this new culture and new sound and music and now bringing it back around to new listeners this much later and still being relevant i mean what do you attribute all that to and how's that feel
2: You know, I attribute it to two things. One, that we always did what we wanted to do. And we had people around us that encouraged us to do that. And the second thing, I forgot. (laughs) 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 Um, But Well, one thing is
0: just good music.
2: It's good music. It's good music. It's interesting now because there's a big literary focus on or journalistic focus on Athens and, and sort of re- getting it all down on paper right now. There's a book out like Athens, Georgia, you know, changed alternative music, changed American culture, or something like that by Grace Hale. Which has, you know gotten a lot of circulation. It's a big, thick book. And people, you know kind of realize that if Athens did do that, and we're proud of our work, where everyone there is proud of it because we did it our way, and we, none of us were out doing it to become rock stars at all. You know if we became rock stars, that was secondary. So, you know, I think we're all really proud of that. And also the fact that we're all still really great friends. And the music to us, all of our music sounds really fresh. And we're still excited by the music. We're re-releasing all of our catalog. And we're cleaning it up as we go. And in the midst of doing all of this, as I said earlier, you know, when we, we sort of... We didn't break up. We just stopped Mm. and in the early 90s because we just couldn't we were so burnt out and we knew we needed a break but it you know one year led on to another to another and i went off and studied and and started a advertising agency and armstead was touring with other bands and mike was getting a master's degree in art history and you know things other things in life start happening but you know, every year or so, we would always get back together and write for our own pleasure, but not really talk about putting out new albums <laughs> because we always knew where that led.
1: And, <laughs> on the road but, again, speaking
2: of Willie Nelson, no, <laughs> on the road again. And the other reason that we wanted to get off the road was we wanted to grow up. Yeah, and when you're on the road, when you become a musician and you reach a certain level of fame, and you're on the road, you stay that age. Whatever age it was that you began, if you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you stay that age. And so here we were, we were in our 30s, and we were still like (laughs) 19-year-olds. It's very true with all musicians. It's called band retarded growth. (laughs) And... But what's interesting is is in this process of going through and re-releasing, putting all of our old albums together and preparing them and and revisiting them and remastering and remixing them is that we have found all of these demos for these other records that we had written.
1: Ooh, I was going to ask that.
2: Yep. So,
1: Those two albums that you had ready, you found the demos for that?
2: Yep. So (laughs) we're gonna record them. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. (laughs) Because they sound great. I want to hear them on record, and I hope some of our fans do too. But you know, it's really just for me. It's just me. I want to go into the studio and record them and make them the way I envisioned them, and at least so I have a copy of it. (laughs) (laughs) And. And then, of course, re-release it.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, who, who contacts you for booking?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. Well, that's, that, that's the odd thing is, you know, at our height, we, you know, we had a, a whole business agents, we had a crew, we had management, we had public relations, we had a whole organization. And now we don't <laughs> at all. We have a record label, a tiny record label, based out of athens which is fine by us Mm -hmm. um because there's no pressure (laughs) Mm -hmm. so we'll go in and record these two albums and in fact i'm headed down at the end of at the end of this month the last week in september i'm going to be in salt lake city for business then i'm flying to athens and we're recording awesome cool you know that's awesome
0: so our listeners that want to pick up these recordings and and get more familiar maybe people that already knew Love Tractor and then some some new fans where can they find you guys
2: Amazon iTunes you know all the music you know Pandora all those streaming services all the musicals music is available there also hard copies on Bandcamp and Amazon eBay you can find all that um, especially the ones that we were re-releasing. Hmm. I mean, you know, because we had a couple of records that were never released on vinyl. They only came out on CD. And so it's exciting for us to put them out on vinyl. Oh, sweet. All the art is brand new, refreshed. All the albums are either remixed or remastered um, with tons of bonus tracks. There's five bonus tracks on the Themes from Venus album, <laughs> which you just heard one cut from. We're kind of swinging from our art records to kind of our pop records to our art records to our pop records. At least in my mind, they're pop records. like the last song you heard. It's in my mind. So the next album after Themes from Venus, which will be out in November, is I think either spring or mid-summer we'll put out Around the Bend, which was our second album, which is a kind of an art record but it has an interesting story behind it we did kind of not really a joke but we wrote the song that was like kind of a country song because all of us like country music and it was an MTV you know this is early in the days of MTV so you know it got a ton of play on MTV i remember we were out on tour and we were in los angeles and we were getting courted by Warner Brothers and EMI and all these record labels and they they had this big idea that they wanted us to sort of fall in line with a uh, this revival of uh, like folk country rock. And we've just done this one song on an album that sounds the rest of the album sounds like kraut rock. You know, it sounds like you know stuff from Germany and mm-hmm. But then there's this like kind of one country song on it that was like a minor hit, you know, on the album on the college charts the alternative charts. And and it got a lot of play on MTV. And so we would go and have these meetings with these record companies, and they're like, We want you guys to be to spearhead this whole country uh, folk rock revival. We're like, No, we're not doing that. Then they signed Lone Justice and Jason and the, and the Nashville Scorchers. Mm. You know, that's what they wanted. I kept saying to You, you don't want us. <laughs> <laughs> you will be very unhappy.
0: <laughs> well, Mark, we uh, definitely appreciate you spending an hour chatting with us and congratulations on uh, quite a successful career in wait, musical
1: wait. life. Social media. Do you have like a website or uh, social media?
2: Um, our website, lovetractor directs just to Facebook. Okay, um, but we, you know, there's a website that's going to go up, but there's really you get more really with just a Facebook page and Instagram yeah. Yeah. for a band.
1: Yeah, um, nobody goes to dot so com. It seems like
2: yeah. So we have Twitter. We have all all the social. You know, we have a YouTube channel, we have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and there will be a website. It's just, I've been sort of sitting on it okay. and uh, not helping out, and <laughs> which I should be doing, but I've been doing other stuff. It'll really just redirect everyone to Bandcamp and to
1: the all the other, other places. Spots. That,
2: yeah. Yeah, all the other spots. So, lovetractor.com. All right.
0: Well let's uh let's take this out with with a crowd favorite. I broke my soul. Tell us a little
2: about that. It was a song that was um, the lyrics were written by a really great friend of ours named John Seawright, who unfortunately passed away and he was a poet. And we took the lyrics that he gave us and kind of extended them, you know, because a poem is not necessarily a lyric, but it's a crowd favorite. I don't know if I sent you the long version or the short version of it um, because on the re-release that's coming out in November, there are two versions of it. Oh, so. okay. They're both long. <laughs> <laughs> we cut it with uh, Mitch Easter and, Mitch, and mixed it. We also did work on it with Brendan O'Brien and on the re-release, Brendan O'Brien's famous for doing Pearl Jam. Okay. And on the re-release, there's a couple of his mixes on it of the you know songs from the album. Oh, cool! Of Brendan's stuff. Have to check. Enjoy. I broke my saw. Yeah, right. broke my I saw. saw, but it <laughs> <And> just broke. <laughs>
0: and thank you. Thanks again, Mark, for yeah, visiting with you, us. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it. Man. Thanks,
2: guys. Thank you, buddy. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh-huh.